0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am in New York City. uh, And I am joined on this episode by a trio of our most beloved regulars, Rosa Brooks in Washington, D.C. Yay! Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And Ed Luce, also in Washington, D.C. Hi, Ed. Yay! Hello. And Corey Shockey probably (laughs) I am in London. London, England. Um, uh, hi Corey.
1: Hello, David.
0: Somebody say yay for Corey. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hooray. um, Hooray. Uh, I was gonna say yay,
2: but but I was trying to make coffee and I just poured coffee grounds all over my floor.
1: I feel like that's a great metaphor for lots of American political life just now.
0: No doubt. It's a big mess. Um, Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Corey, I I have to say, every time I read stories of California fires, I think of you. (sighs) Thank
1: you. The power is out in my neighborhood there. But the fires are not currently endangering my house, I'm pleased to say.
0: Yeah, it seems like millions of people are out of out of power, and it's kind of interesting that you know every few months California you know loses major swaths of the landscape, loss of life, loss of homes, all this other stuff, and yet it doesn't seem to rise to the level of national emergency. Um, but you would think it would, right?
1: Well. <laughs> You know, even more locally speaking, that the great golden state of California is the world's fifth largest economy, so we ought to be able to govern ourselves in a way that provides reliable public services, I would think.
0: You are a crazy-eyed optimist. That's why we love to have (laughs) you here. Uh, You think in the year 2019 that the fifth largest economy in the world in the most prosperous (laughs) nation in history could actually provide, I don't know, electricity without burning I know.
1: Crazy talk.
0: Crazy. Um, So, you you know, there are a bunch of things that have happened in the world in the past couple of days, and I think we should touch upon all of them. Uh, but let's talk about the, 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 the global event that's garnered the most attention in the United States, because it's uh, interesting that something so uncontroversial could become controversial so quickly. And that is, of course, the uh, successful effort by United States special operators to locate, uh, with the assistance of the Kurds and perhaps Iraqis, um, and, of course, uh, the U.S. intelligence community, um, uh, the f- f- recent former head and founder of ISIS, and uh, to eliminate him and to capture a couple of those closest to him. And uh, the president went on television on Sunday morning to announce this. And did any of you guys watch? I no. Okay, I, I
1: find it. I feel more patriotic when I don't listen to the president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> that's well. That's a,
0: that's a uh, it's a it's a it's a good instinct. Ed, you watched it. What did you think of his performance?
3: Um, I just astonished by the the gory sort of detail that he reveled it. Um, uh, the use of the word "dog" that he died like a dog whimpering and crying out. I mean, Baghdadi is a monster. Don't don't get me wrong. Um, but the president of the United States shouldn't have this sort of teenage schadenfreude up sort of video game killing schadenfreude up when he announces something um, like this, a successful operation to take out a terrorist leader um, is um, a, a somber event. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's also a time for applauding um in counterintelligence, special ops, and others for carrying off a successful operation, but to sort of, as I say, revel in the gory detail, um, sort of repetitively, uh, and then go on to describe. I think with, from from uh, those who who understand what you can see from and hear from a drone, from drone footage, completely inaccurate detail about hearing Baghdadi's whimpering, crying, etc., before he died. Um, and describing it's like a movie. Well, that is the 15. That is the cruel 15-year-old boastful kid. Um, and it's just entirely inappropriate. I also think that it's the kind of, particularly the reference to dog, to dying like a dog the whole time, is knowing you know the role that dogs play a- a amongst um, orthodox Muslim families, um, being seen as unclean and therefore enemies. Um, being degraded by being likened to dogs will be, you know, part of ISIS and other um, Islamist recruitment and videos. This is how this is how the leader of the West is talking. So, uh, and I haven't even got into some of the operational details he probably shouldn't have disclosed, um, or the fact that you know he's he's complimenting Russia and dissing America's European allies, all in the same, all in the same self exaltatory um, announcement. It's it's good news, very good news that Baghdadi was removed. Um, um, but Trump did his best to destroy that good news with the, the manner in which he told the world.
0: Well, we saw today um, an example of how you do it. The Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, went out and they gave a press conference on this and they stuck to the facts. Um, and were, um, in fact, framed this in a way that was somewhat contradictory in tone uh, and in substance to the President of the United States. For example, Esper noted that the effort to remove ISIS began in 2014, kind of charitability towards the Obama administration that Trump never shows, uh, and pointed out that this effort had been planned uh, for a long, long time and in conjunction with many allies. Um, Milly, on the other hand, also um, said that he had not heard of the details that Ed just referenced uh, and that, and I thought this was a little bit weird, Rosa, but he said that he had not spoken um, to the unit that had carried out the raid, uh, but that perhaps Trump had. Uh, and I thought it was kind of strange that the chairman would not have been in on that call not had the conversation or heard what the unit had to say uh, but the president had but then again perhaps he was just covering uh, for the president what's your take on all this rosa
2: well either way it's it's that's not great right I mean I mean uh, we it seems that the president himself may or may not have actually spoken to members of the unit that carried out this raid but he he certainly gave uh, his friend Vladimir Putin a heads up before he gave Congress a heads up, um, which is disturbing. Well, he, didn't, uh, he,
0: he didn't give Congress a heads up, apparently. Right,
2: indeed. Congress found it out the way everybody else did, more or less. Um, um, and, it, I mean, it, it's yet another example, obviously, of the ways in which traditional ideas of... Both the courtesies and, and in some cases, the law have been ignored. Um, where you skip over your own chain of command, the general, the general who's in the chain of command, and don't give him a heads up if you're going to talk to uh, subordinate commanders when you go to uh, an adversary's leader, rather than reporting on a uh, use of force to your own Congress. Um, so, you know, nothing new there, nothing surprising there. The only thing I, I would Add to what Ed said is, it, and I haven't been following this super closely because there's been a World Series going on. As I, as I think you know, um, <laughs> but, well which done. Just shows Rosa. you how how desperate I am for distraction from the the awfulness of the world. But um, my understanding, just as a, a, a point of clarity that actually has some relevance, is that you know, we didn't kill him, he killed himself. Uh, he killed himself because he didn't want to risk capture specifically, um, as, as I understand it, and correct me if that's mistaken, um, but that it was his, his own decision in effect to, to pull the trigger, uh, use the detonator, um, when he realized that he probably was not going to get out of that situation without being either killed or from his perspective, probably significantly worse being captured. Um, From our perspective, I think that, you know, it's a loss. You want to capture people if you possibly can, um, because you get more information from them if they're alive than if they are dead and have succeeded in destroying whatever evidence they, they wanted to destroy. But the other reason that this is significant, and this is not to say that 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 we somehow screwed up. I mean, you know, these are situations where things are happening very, very fast. And surely he has been preparing for this moment himself for. For months and indeed for years, in terms of thinking, okay, I need a plan for what to do uh, if they're closing in on me. So, so it's not it's not surprising. It's certainly not a failure on the part of U.S. intelligence or or military operators, um, based on anything we know right now. But but this this the reason that I emphasize this is it goes back to Ed's point um, about the rhetoric coming from President Trump that that he's a dog that he was whimpering and so on. Um, from the perspective, you know, another reason if you're al Baghdadi, another reason that you choose to take yourself out rather than being captured is that you do want to be a martyr. You know, you want to inspire your people. You don't want to be the guy, the embarrassing-looking guy behind bars, uh, who's you know singing like a bird. You want to be you want to be the martyr uh, who does something to protect your cause. Um, and we have just just as I mean, going back to something. Where no question the there were multiple u s uh, actors who were very much uh culpable very much to blame the the Abu Ghraib scandal in two thousand and four um uh, abuse of detainees in iraq that that caused just untold problems for the United States because it it became the rallying cry uh, for both insurgents and terrorists um, in Iraq and in elsewhere. So sort of, this is what the US does to people. And in this situation, we have now created, in some ways, a new martyr um, by it, it which was going to happen no matter what. I mean, there's there's no way to go after him without risking his his own followers will frame it as martyrdom. And there's nothing we can do about that part of it. Um, and this was just always a risk, but, you know, the benefits presumably are going to be worth it Was our calculation from a military perspective, although, although I think you know, it was probably worth having a conversation about that as well. Um, but, but when the president of the United States uses language that plays right into the ISIS propaganda machine and not just ISIS, sort of every other adversary that sort of says, this is how they treat us, this is how they think of us. You know, they mock us when we're dying. Um, It's, you know, that's not the one. That's not a narrative that is that is going to keep U.S. forces in the region safer. That's
1: not a narrative that's going to keep the United States safer.
0: Um, So
1: I have two important points to add to this.
0: Oh well, I had a question, but okay, go ahead. No, I no, forget it. I don't. The first crucial
1: point is that. For those of you who are not yet Tom Lehrer fans, the opening of his song on NATO's mid 1950s nuclear sharing proposal, the multilateral force, talks about how uh, this has been recently in the news, but the newspapers, but as it was baseball season, the newspapers might not have covered it. And I feel like Rosa is exactly <laughs> in Tom Lehrer's face because the World Series for nationals is crowding it out. And as a St. Louis Cardinals fan, I can only approve of that in the strongest possible terms. The second thing is about General Milley. Uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is not in the chain of command. He's the president's senior military advisor. Uh, but it it would be appropriate for the combatant commander or the the component commander to be directly in touch with the commander-in-chief. What is so interesting to me about General Milley is that he looks basically like Prometheus watching his vultures drop in for lunch on his liver in everything that's been going on recently. And as David said, General Milley... Uh, grimly pointed out that uh, he had no idea where the president got the whimpering and crying stuff and other details. He's he clearly cannot be happy about the revelation of lots of operational deals details by the president just to sex up the conversation. And I thought he and Secretary Esper, I agree strongly with you, David, that the two of them are setting a terrific example for how not to let the president politicize the military. I, I'm, as you know, a friend and fan of Jim Mattis's, and it could be that, that Jim's strategy will prove right and that Secretary Esper will get unceremoniously kicked overboard for... Um, playing straight down the line and giving televised press conferences and acting like a proper secretary of defense, which the president, but the president's also less likely to feel threatened by Mark Esper doing those things than Jim Mattis doing those things. All I'm saying is that it is good for civil military relations and good for the country to have the senior military advisor to the president and the secretary of defense, the senior civilian in charge of the department giving factual briefings to the public on what occurred. Um,
2: yeah, nope. absolutely. Nope. And, no, there's and, no. and, Go on. And, oh, no, I was, just, I was just going to say Corey is absolutely right, and she's, she's right in everything she said. Thank you. Yeah.
1: I have a That's little <laughs> halo made with my fingers over
2: the top yeah.
0: of my head. Since I, said I that, second so. that. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, I agree primarily because Corey was agreeing with me, but having said that, also because she was right. Um, but let's let's go a step beyond all of this because, of course, it's not always all about Trump, uh, and in fact. Let me pose this first to Ed, but I'd be interested in all three of your takes on it. One of the interesting things about all of this is in almost every area of foreign policy, it seems, uh, there is the president's foreign policy and that of those closest to him is defenders and acolytes, sort of Secretary Pompeo, perhaps. Um, but there tends then to be down at the working level, at the professional level, an alternative foreign policy, where they try to slow walk the president's bad ideas, or um, clarify his mysterious or offensive statements, um, or undo things that were done. And and Corey referenced uh, Secretary Mattis, and he he certainly did that in some cases where he was given orders, and 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 they got. Slow walked, or they were evaluated in due course, and didn't happen, and and so forth. And in this particular case, the president seems to have made a decision with regard to betraying the Kurds uh, and to you know placating Erdogan and and Putin um, uh, that was contrary to the objectives and the sense of mission of of the U.S. military and. Now, what we've seen is a c- couple of things. There was a New York Times story yesterday that said that, in fact, this had been long planned, this mission, and uh, Trump's decision uh, had undermined it uh, uh, or put it at risk somewhat by making it much more complicated. Um, but the other thing, there was a, there was a, another story about how um, this uh, mission and and going in and now protecting. Oil fields um, was was a way that the military could essentially say, "Well, Mr. President, we've got to take care of this and that," and sort of undo his decision to pull them all out of the region. And somebody in one of the stories was quoted as saying something to the effect of, um, "This is like, uh, you know, taking something a child doesn't want to." Uh, Eat uh, and 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 mixing it with applesauce so the <laughs> child will eat it and, and 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 you know the 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 point was you know well if you tell the president their oil fields to be protected he he gets protecting oil fields and so then we'll be able to go and do this thing um, and so you know one of the sort of undercovered stories of all of this to me is this was the military and the professionals in the government carrying on their Syria policy. Both, um, as they had been before the president's new policy, and in a way that kind of slowed the consequences of his policy. Ed,
3: um, that sounds right, and of course Lindsey Graham picked up on that um, that babble source tactic too, um, and and clearly stressed it privately and in public um, to Trump that there's oil fields there. Um, Look, this goes to the question of what a deep state is, which is a very germane one to raise on this um, on, on on this wonderful podcast. Um, and as you know, the phrase was originally coined about the Turkish state, um, namely what Ataturk had set up via the army and the civil service, the secular sort of backbone of the Turkish post-Ottoman Turkish state. Um, which um, did operate as a deep state. It did suppress Islamist parties. It did suppress separatist Kurdish parties and so forth. It, it was a deep state that, that overrode, um, via coups and other methods, um, the democratic um, expressions of the Turkish population for 70 or 80 years after Turkey was formed. And I think you could argue that during the Cold War, there was, there was an American deep state, there was a defense industrial complex. Um, that, you know, was, had bipartisan support, felt it expressed the will of um, um, the people as well as the national interest, um, that has become less and less true of the United States. It's still a vast defense industrial data complex, but it's become less and less true since the end of the Cold War that there's strong support for American foreign policy and, and Pax Americana, et cetera. Now, Trump is the really interesting test case um, of whether there still is a sort of a, a deep um, consensus there that can override the popular will. And I think the answer is, this example is a really, really interesting way of examining um, that question. The, the answer is when they can persuade him to. Um, and, you know, the keeping 500 troops um, around the, the, the northeastern Syrian oil fields because that's all he cares about and because he actually probably thinks he can persuade Exxon you know, to go into Syria and pump out oil and then send it to the treasury. Um, he probably actually thinks like that. I would imagine clever people um, who are used to working with Trump um, have been using, uh, have been allowing him to fantasise about what this decision might mean because they know that's the way to, um, to 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 do it. And I'm I'm sure there are many there are many other examples. Um, uh, you know, in in terms of flattering Trump and just finding what are is what are his um, sweet spots and, and pressing them. It's not a sustainable strategy. Um, you know, he 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 comes back to what he wants to do always. And I've no doubt people tried to do this to stop him talking to Kim Jong, which which succeeded for a while, then failed. They tried to do it to stop him inviting the Taliban to Camp David, which succeeded for a while, but he'll. He'll do to Afghanistan what he did um, to the Kurds, I've no doubt, um, and ultimately the deep state loses because of many, as many people have pointed out, um, this operation uh, you know, happened in spite of Trump, not because of him, um, and was jeopardized by the withdrawal announcement. I believe that there was a Kurdish double agent working in Baghdadi's inner circle Who was the key asset here? Who identified him? Gave um, the Americans the uh, coordinates and the intelligence to be able to carry out this operation. So, you know, there's a sort of pyrrhic victory in killing Baghdadi uh, amidst a larger, I fear, war that the deep state is losing.
1: May I please object to one thing that that in Ed's uh, elegant argument? Which is. I
3: welcome, I welcome your <laughs> hatred, Corey. <laughs> Not my
1: hatred, my fervent admiration. But because <laughs> I believe progress is a contact sport, intellectually speaking, um, I want to okay. object to this notion about the US having had a deep state during the Cold War or ever. Because the characteristic of the deep state uh, is that it doesn't matter who people choose to put in charge, or who is responsible for running the country, in authoritarian societies, the deep state prevents the execution of the law. And that's the difference between the civil servants and the American government agencies and the whistleblowers. This is not the deep state of the United States speaking. It's people demanding that the elected leadership respect the rule of law, respect the Constitution, and people at taking seriously their own oaths to uphold and defend the Constitution. So uh, much as I smile at Deep State Radio being our title, I always have actually bridled a little bit about it, because I don't think free societies where the rule of law and constitutional constraints on what can be done by any elected leader um, uh, are comparable to the deep state and authoritarian societies, preventing the rule of law from being carried out.
0: So um, two th- two things. Let me just say two things on that. One is, as all of you guys know, since you guys were you know present at the creation, the whole idea of calling this deep state radio was to take the piss out of the idea of deep state. It was to sort of say, this is a silly notion <laughs> of these conspiracy theorists, and, and yes. that we're and and you know I feel you know, that, uh, you know, that, you know, it still works because that conspiracy theory is out there. Having said that, um, and, and Corey, uh, if you don't remember my prior references to this, you'll like this. Um, uh, it, and the deep state goes back to the very beginnings of the United States. Uh, and in fact, the Articles of Confederation, you um, uh, were extremely weak because the pro-state's rights people wanted it to be that way. And they feared the uh, concentration of power in the federal in a, in a, in a stronger federal system. Um, and in particular, the group that they feared were the former generals and uh, senior officers of the Continental Army who they thought were gonna set themselves up as a kind of an American aristocracy. Uh, and of course, um, th- there, there was a group of them called the Society of the Cincinnati, um, uh, named after the Roman leader turned farmer. Uh, and and th- th- that's to, to say a group of the military leaders. Uh, and they were in fact against Articles of Confederation. They wanted a constitution, um, and they fought uh, to to help make that uh, happen, which produced a lot of theories about the power of this group. But needless to say, the leader of the this society was who?
1: Alexander Hamilton. No, George Washington. <laughs> so,
0: although he was, George Washington. No, he was in it, George Washington. Exactly. So, um, <laughs> So George Washington and the Society of Cincinnati push for constitutional reform, get a constitution, and the president of the United States is one of their members, George Washington, and Alexander Hamilton, another of their members, becomes the secretary of the treasury. And so this... I didn't know
1: any of that history, David, so I'm turning cartwheels down my hallway that you taught it to me. Thank you.
0: Wow, Wow. don't hurt yourself. But but in... in, (laughs) Um, but but in any event, the point is we've always sort of thought there were these groups. And the reality is when you have a professional government, you end up with these groups. And that all accelerated after the Civil War when, in fact, we started to put together a real professional government in order not to be swung to and fro by the kind of political uh, mood swings that the country had just gone through. Uh, having said all of that, Rosa, we come back to this notion that... Um the president, you know, offers up one policy, and um other people in the government, you know, try to come up with ways to counteract it. And so far, in some areas, it seems to have worked. And you know, we're seeing this to some extent also in the case of um the impeachment in Korea and Ukraine, where there are a bunch of professionals who are simply saying, uh you know, this makes us uncomfortable. And when political types started running roughshod over them, they start taking notes in their meetings. And when the White House says, don't tell us what, you know, you know, they say, no, we're going to do that. And they actually have an effect. Now, I don't believe in deep state conspiracy theories, but you got to admit there is some value to having professionals in the government who stand up for the rule of law.
2: Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, and, um, I think that we have, thank goodness, discovered that despite President Trump's best efforts to sort of hollow out the executive branch, uh, there are still people there who are willing to say, hey, look, my loyalty is to the United States of America, my loyalty is to the oath that I swore uh, to the Constitution, not to some political apparatchnik who works for president trump or or the president himself in his personal capacity my job is to advance the country's interests, not to make president trump richer uh or somehow more famous or happier um so so that's all to the good that that being said i also think it's a really it's a it's a really interesting and complicated set of questions around uh around loyalty, around dissent that that is brought up by all of this, because in in other ways you might say those who those who hoped that there was a deep state in the positive sense have in many ways been wrong, right? That that there have been many moments where you would have thought more people would speak out or resign en masse and they didn't, you know. And we're really, I mean, in, in a sense, what we're coming up against right now, and I, you know, is, is that moment when individuals are thinking to themselves, uh-oh, I have to decide whether to face the wrath of Trump or to face the wrath of Congress. You know, when they're put in a direct, directly in a position where just kind of ducking their heads and waiting all this out ceases to become an option, you know, that one way or another they're gonna, their names are gonna be in the papers, they're gonna make somebody mad. And, and that you know i'm 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 so glad that they're coming out there have been there have been plenty there there have been and i and there have been other people who have spoken out without needing a congressional subpoena to do so but but in in all kinds of ways i i'm I'm not quite as I, I'm not sure that our takeaway from this should be, oh well, it's all going to be okay because there will always be you know, patriotic civil servants who. Who do their jobs and speak out when necessary? Because just as much as so far this has been a saga of some people speaking out in important ways at important moments, it's also been a saga of a lot of people keeping their heads down and their mouths shut at important moments when speaking out might have helped.
0: Well, it's you know it's true. It 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 is kind of it is kind of the way the government works, isn't it, Corey? I mean the. The, the, even even in in fairly benign governments you you end up having civil servants who yes they're temporary political bosses to death um, and there is a kind of uh to and fro that take goes goes on between the bureaucracy and the political leadership that shapes policies um and and it's actually not as that unusual uh and in fact it's kind of an unspoken check in our system. It's not that the, the bureaucracy is empowered to overrule their bosses, but they've been hired by the Congress, effectively, paid to do these jobs to, to sort of stay in certain lanes and maintain certain standards. Isn't, isn't, is that a fair way to characterize it?
1: Absolutely right. I mean, when Rosa was saying people don't know whether they should Uh, respond to Congress or respond to the president, I was thinking, that's exactly what James Madison and Alexander Hamilton wanted to have happen. Um, And with civil servants and politically appointed uh, superiors and politically elected uh, heads of state in the United States, um, it's, it's always a negotiation within the confines of the law and the Constitution. You know, I like the example of military plans, right? Because the war plans process works best when there's an easy give and take between what the president wants to accomplish and the military understanding that and coming up with plans that the Secretary of Defense oversees to make sure that they achieve the president's political objectives. The president gets to p- pick the objectives, he gets to decide or she gets to decide what, how much blood and treasure and attention to risk on achieving them. But it's the civil servants um, who make the whole thing come together. And it works really well when there's an easy give and take between them all. When it gets brittle, as it did in the run-up to the 2003 Iraq war, and um, as it sounds like it has been over the withdrawal from Syria, um, the, the system um, typically produces bad outcomes uh, if you don't have the sort of easy give and take. Because... You know, weirdly, our system, as sharp-elbowed and contrasting powers as it has, relies on an enormous amount of social trust. And I think what we are seeing in the Trump administration is the collapse of that social trust between the civil servants and military officers in the um, in the bureaucracy. And the elected president and people like Stephen Miller, who are his appointed um, uh, subordinates. And so the system gets really brittle right now in in a different way than it does on war plans because the bureaucracy is afraid that the president isn't operating within the confines of the law and within the confines of the Constitution. Uh, that's why you start to get whistleblowers and in congressional investigations.
0: Yeah. So in, in, in many respects, this is just another way of the system um, working as it, as, as it should be working. Let's just take in the final uh, uh,
2: minutes. I don't know about that, David, but okay, we can move on. <laughs> but, but I'm not entirely sure that that is
0: well, a okay. fully accurate okay.
2: summation of what Corey said or, or right in general.
0: Okay, well, um, let, let me def- defend myself a second and then go and respond to it. But essentially what I meant was, I, I, I certainly didn't mean that the way Trump was behaving and the necessity for countering Trump was actually the way the system was supposed to work. What I, what I was really saying was that uh, having to uh, having a professional government uh, which has mandated standards and procedures, actually, uh, is a protection within the government, uh, and and a and a fairly healthy thing. Now, go ahead and argue. With okay,
2: that. I will. I will accept. I, <laughs> I will accept that revised statement. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's worth um, emphasizing something that that uh, Corey said and 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 you alluded to as well, which is that. A system that works well is a system that by design includes things like mechanisms for disagreement, controversy, and dissent within the system and protects and cherishes those things rather than treats them as, as irrelevant or unimportant or embarrassing. You know, that that we, we actually do know a fair amount about what makes institutions healthy, about the, you know, in, when you have institutions, whether it's uh, the military or whether it's, you know, certain kinds of dangerous occupations, other kinds of dangerous occupations where the stakes are really high. Um, and that, on the one hand, means that you have to have high levels of rapid uh, execution of orders and obedience to authority. But on the other hand, it also means that you need to have high and universal levels of vigilance against mistakes and a willingness to say, oh, no, wait, uh, you know, Mr. Pilot, you're about to fly into a mountain, even if the pilot is senior to you and so on. Um, you know, We know a fair amount about what you need to do in that kind of system to generate, if you will, the, the optimal level of dissent, you know, enough to be protective, not so much to be constantly disruptive and distracting. And I think that what we're seeing with the whistleblower coming from the intelligence community, for instance, is that on that one, at least, we got something right. Uh, I don't think we have gotten it sort of equally right across all of the government agencies. I think that, you know, in many ways, this, this all highlights that we still have a lot of work to do to try to ensure that in the future, assuming we, we get to have a future that we help design, um, that, that dissent and disagreement is, is actively nurtured and protected. Uh, there's still a lot more that needs to be done there.
0: Okay. Um, I was going to go around and sort of talk about uh, other things that have happened in the world that seem to be fairly significant. Um, and I was going to turn to Ed for his periodic take um, on what's going on in brexit. Um, uh, and we've got about five minutes. so let me let me do this in kind of rapid fire. Uh, uh, way, but, but, but Ed, uh, I saw that Boris Johnson has sent a letter to the European Union saying we'd like uh, an extension to January 31st, which uh, he had previously said he would rather be uh, lying dead in a ditch than doing, um, uh, but that hasn't apparently happened either. Um, it seems like there may be elections in the UK in the interim. What's your take on what this all means?
3: Well, it's actually one of the um, very few good lines that Jeremy Corbyn has ever had, which is, uh, you said you would tie in a ditch another broken promise. Uh, so um, Parliament has, um, you know, <laughs> condemned, <laughs> condemned uh, Boris to live in a ditch, um, uh, at least for the next um, three months, two, three months or so. Um, I guess there's going to be an election between now and January the 31st, because there's no other way of resolving this. Um, The expectation has been that Boris would win it, because Boris's entire strategy has been premised on Brexit fatigue, that everybody's just fed up of hearing the word Brexit and Parliament not resolving this, and um, that the more fatigue and frustration people feel, the more they'll vote for the person who says, I will end it by Brexiting. uh, the rest of the parties and some of the Conservative Party would argue that Brexit will condemn Britain to brexit because that's just the beginning of the <laughs> argument and it will go on forever and ever. And we will you know, never escape this matrix that we've created for ourselves. And um, nobody really has a clue how um, the election will settle this because although the polls show Boris is what well, the Conservatives are 10, 12 points ahead of the Labour Party. Um, they're not um, so high in the polls in a first party system that that makes a predictable majority. And indeed Theresa May, when she pretty much lost the last election, began at 15 points ahead um, before um, before uh, resulting in a minority conservative government um, in 2017 and uh, the time before the poll suggested Remain would win in the referendum. And the time before that in 2015, the polls suggested the Conservatives would lose under David Cameron and it won a thumping victory. So the polls are just consistently wrong. I, I don't think because pollsters are um, you know, getting worse at their job, but because I think the British people are have lost their tribal party loyalties and are very fickle and are very restless and are very frustrated and are therefore very unpredictable. Um, so um, I don't know how this is going to turn out, I guess. Uh, just one other sort of um, grace note is, you know, I, I think you're resorting here because of my accent to um, um, racial stereotyping, that, to assume that I'm actually going to know the answer um, when <laughs> Corey, although she has a, a, a sunny, golden Californian <laughs> accent, is sitting in London. You should direct the, the question to to, to, to Corey, once again, I'm the, the victim of racial stereotypes. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of
0: social yeah. social
3: media but- sympathy for you there,
0: Ed. I'm very, I, I am very
2: eager to hear hear what Corey thinks of this, but can I also suggest that we give we give Ed's uh, weekly updates uh, a name like the, you know, what the fuck is up with breakfast? Is, what, what the fuck is up with Brexit? With Ed loose breakfast too, actually. But, no, Ed um, will do
0: Brexit. You know, or, we'll or Ed's Brexit. what the fuck Brexit minute? Um, I like Brexit
2: because it is a regular feature, and that really is kind of the theme.
3: You know, <laughs> I would I would happily I would happily agree to do that.
0: Yeah, well, I, we've been thinking a little bit about uh, doing an an event in in Washington, a sort of day long, you know, visitation of our various themes, maybe in the spring. And uh, the two names that I've been playing around with are WonkCon. No. (laughs) Okay, calm down. It's not the only name. And, you know, give it a chance. Let it grow on you. But the other one was the Washington Today Forum, because then the initials would be WTF. And then we, could-
1: <laughs> oh. oh, I like that one.
0: Yeah, I cast my
1: vote for the latter,
0: right. So then you know, and then we could make that into kind of you know some kind of more, you know, Washington oriented pod, you know, than the, you know but with this being a little bit more in, in, international and then the, we would have our own WTF moments. Everybody could have their own WTF moments. And if Ed claims Brexit, that's fine. I will claim breakfast. Um, As you suggest, it should be done.
1: Uh, I'll I'll work with you on that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Something I know about, and I've really devoted a lot of thought to.
1: Excellent. That leaves happy hour to me.
0: Well, and the St. Louis Cardinals. Perfect. Um, Always. uh, Yeah. So do you want to talk about Brexit, Corey, or do you want to talk about the way people behaved at the baseball game last night?
1: Uh, I will happily talk about both of those things. First, Brexit, it's boring. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's been boring for a really long time. And I find myself growing increasingly resentful of the, of the well-educated and insulated from any possible consequence, uh, you know, Reese types for whom this seems an elaborate game while they are damaging the country. Um, And the opportunity cost for the United States and other of Britain's allies, of all that Britain is not paying attention to, because this is going to go on endlessly, I find myself somewhat sympathetic to what is reported to be the French president's view, which is, we don't care. Like, just get it over with. Uh, We're tired of the melodrama. Um, and so, as I understand it... Or,
3: or get, get the fuck out of here, but in a French accent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> as I understand it, the prime minister got support to hold an election, but not enough to modify the existing legislation governing elections. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I feel like I am doing my job as a foreign policy expert well, if my mother does not have to learn how to put places on a map, she doesn't already know how to put on a map. I don't want her to have to learn new places <laughs> because of disasters. And I feel like none of the rest of us should have to become experts on British constitutional practice. Uh, and to the behavior of the Washington national stands. Uh, I confess I am of two minds about this, because on the one hand... Um, you know, I do feel like um, we should behave better than the president behaves. Uh, On the other hand, as you guys know, my favorite American strategist is the great baseball man, Bill Veck, owner of the former St. Louis Browns. Uh, First in shoes, first in booze, and last in the American League. And in his magnificent book, The Hustler's Handbook, Bill Veck talks about the sad demise of heckling at baseball games. So when I saw Nationals fans booing the President of the United States, I first thought, how wonderful for Bill Veck and the game of baseball that heckling is back. And I secondly thought, and here, David, I think you and I may have common cause, that mocking the powerful is proof of the power of the common woman and man and that is what free societies are all about. So, at the end of the day, I cheer them.
0: Standing or, ovation. alternatively,
2: to use <laughs> to use the term coined by uh, the anthropologist Jim Scott, these are. These are weapons of the weak, right? That that we is it is it ideal to have? Is it is it civil, et cetera, et cetera? But incivility is a weapon of those who have no other power that the Americans. I don't think the American voter feels like they are terribly powerful. I think the American voter feels feels pretty locked out of a system that is extraordinarily resistant to change. And this is one of the few things the American voter can do is boo Donald Trump when he shows up at
1: Matt Park. And you know, the president creates a narrative by only ever uh, appearing in public when he is at his own rallies amidst his own fans. And I think it's actually really good for him to have to hear what a cross-section of other loyal Americans think about his behavior.
0: Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely right. And I thought that the the response of some prominent media people saying that this was uncivil misunderstood what um, uh, American civics is all about. Uh, but also, uh, you know, comes from people who are in a position to criticize the president multiple hours per day on national television, which, as you point out, most people aren't. Um, and so, and the president doesn't present himself to the public very often, and so consequently, when he does, they get their chance, and and that's what free expression is about. No laws were broken, uh, there was no violence. It was just simply an expression to the president of how they felt about him, uh, which is, you know, exactly how you know democracy is supposed to work. Um, having said this, we've gone through this whole hour without the opportunity to discuss number of issues that I think are uh, important. And of course, we'll do that in future episodes, but I will take 30 seconds to say, don't forget about Latin America. Watch what's going on in Latin America right now. There was an election in Argentina on Sunday in which the Peronists won again. And uh, uh, it it is a step away from the right-wing government uh, there. And uh, uh, we shall see where it goes, because there have certainly been uh, plenty problems of plenty with the Peronists in, in in Argentina, but more importantly, I think the country that uh, has some of the worst inequality in the world, and for a long time was seen as one of the models for behavior in the world, uh, uh, is next door to Argentina, uh, and that's uh, Chile. And uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, the 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 Chilean people uh, have had enough of the inequality and enough of leadership by uh, a very, very small ruling class in that society, and they've taken to the streets. Uh, and this echoes other efforts around the world, in Hong Kong and so forth, and sometimes you see things like this and you wonder if you're getting a rumbling of things like the people power movement of the late 80s or the one in the late 60s, uh, when uh, the uh, civic courage of large groups of people in one country spills over and feeds the civic courage of large groups of people in other countries. And we should watch it because the inequality they have in Chile is uh, very similar to the inequality that we have here in the United States. Um, and and by the way, it's it's worse in some other places, such as Brazil, where they have um, just a just an awful president at the moment, and it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. So, that's a a little. Can note.
1: I pile on with Mark Twain's fabulous uh, rebuttal when he was challenged with being a revolutionary? He said, "I have never known there to be a revolution against which there was nothing to revolute." <laughs>
0: Well, you know, you've got you've covered a lot of ground here, Corey, from <laughs> to Tom Lehrer to Bill Beck to Mark Twain. And I think you deserve high praise for that. I'm tempted to turn to Ed and ask him for some tacitus or something, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but Joe, please don't. Uh, But we'll do that next week. We'll do that on the next episode of Deep State Radio. And we know you'll come back because these guys are so smart and they're so well-read and they're so charming and they're so right about everything that that's why you want to come back and that's why you know honestly the reality that we're two years and a quarter or two years and a third into the life of Deep State Radio and we're having our biggest audiences ever more people are tuning in more people are staying longer the average person who tunes into Deep State Radio listens to two or three podcasts a week they spend a couple of hours a week listening to to you guys that is a tribute
1: thank you Deep State nerds
0: yeah, no, it is a it is a tribute to you guys because you 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 really put the world in perspective in a way you can't find it anywhere else. So thank you, Corey, thank you, Ed, thank you, Rosa, thank you, Deep State Nerds. Go to the DSRnetwork.com, look at some of the other cool stuff we've got going on because we always have something, you know, interesting and cool each week. Uh, and by the way, you know, you can register to be a, a DSR follower. Just simply by giving your name and your email address, and then we'll email you every week, kind of update on what we got going on and so forth. You don't have to pay anything for that. If you want to pay and be a member, then you can get all sorts of cool stuff and benefits. But, but just you, you know, go register, and then we can send you an email, and then you won't have to wonder whether we've done anything interesting. We'll we'll actually tell you. So, thanks for all of that. Join us again soon, uh, and uh, see you then.